So we're here. The process, episode one, with me, Xavier Simmons. Shit, where do we begin? Well, first off, why? And why now? You know, my grandpa, my grandpa died this year, August 13th, 2023. And I was driving around, you know, about a week after That's, that's something I like to do, I need to do, just to process the world. Whether it's after a death or just going through life. I was driving around and I was thinking about his life, the conversations we've had. And I was thinking about my life. What do I want to do with it? What do, I, what do I want to say with the words that I have in my body? Because even outside of that, this is a concept that I've been at conflict with for year and a half and what always held me back was I'm a private person I don't want people in my shit if I can prevent it fuck that fuck that because I am a leader and leaders stand out. They stand out to be held accountable. They stand out to be made vulnerable. They stand out to be humiliated. They stand out to be praised. They stand out to lead. And I'm done hiding. I've learned and accepted 
that's just what comes with being a leader. There's no way out of it. Take it on the chin, swallow the pill, chew it up. So, for anyone who doesn't know who I am, of course, my name is Xavier Simmons. I'm a public figure. My family, my parents specifically, are celebrities. My mother is Tashira Simmons, writer, author, public speaker. And she was the wife of my father, Earl DMX Simmons. Musical icon will be remembered forever. And of course, if you've been living under a rock, he has passed on. Hmm. I was born in Yonkers, New York, December 16th, 1992. Many people don't know that aspect of my life. And I feel like I'm a part of the generation, the last generation that got to play outside, be kids, do whatever we wanted until the lights came on, the light posts, right? Like, for example, we would, <laughs> we would race our bikes, our bicycles up and down the street, all over town. We would explore abandoned housing projects, abandoned homes. There was always a new haunted story that we would follow. One time, one time since I was the youngest of the group, they dared me to stay in this abandoned house, um, really an apartment, but to stay in this abandoned apartment for 10 seconds. I had to stay in there for 10 seconds. Now mind you, at that time, I'm about four, four, five years old. And, <laughs> oh my God, I was scared shitless. I, I, I was terrified. I was terrified and I won the bet, but I just, I, I still see it in my mind. I'm looking around and the walls are cracked and chipped and beaten, have holes in them. It's decayed. There is no floor. The floor is rotted. There's roaches all over it and puddles, stains everywhere. And, you know, mind you, this isn't, you know, this isn't daylight, right? I mean, there, there's, it felt like it may have been 
The sun was going down, six, seven o'clock on a summer night. And I won. And then I remember all of my friends being out there, cheering me on, like, you did it, you did it, you did it. <sighs> hmm. And just so you know, what you're gonna see on this show is jumping from topic to topic. There is no set thing. I'm just free flowing, right off the cuff. I had a friend from around that same time. His name was Travis. I remember Travis the most fondly because he was one of my best friends. No, he was, he was my best friend from that time. He may have been a year older than me. And he had a tumor. He had a tumor on the back left side of his head. We would race bikes. I mean, we did, we did everything. We all did it as a group, but Travis, Travis was my guy. So one day he tells us, one day he tells us, guys, I'm getting surgery on my tumor. We're all happy for him. And we know how big this moment is. The next day we don't see him. We're not expecting anything, of course. He has his surgery. A second day goes by. A third day. A fourth. And then a fifth. Then a week goes by. Nobody knows. So I knew where Travis lived and I went to his house. Knock on his door. Nothing. I knock again. Mind you, I'm still five years old at this time. His mother opens the door. Which, looking back now, she looked about 22, 25. Hair in a ponytail, black hair. Cashew-colored skin. Travis was a deep brown, like almond color. She opens the door. Hmm. She opens the door and she just starts wailing, crying, just crying, crying, crying. I asked, what happened to Travis? Can Travis come out to play? And she's just wailing, wailing, wailing. And I just walk away.
because I know. I was only five years old, but I knew. I knew what her cries meant that Travis had died. I never saw Travis again. That was my first experience with death. About six months later, <clears throat> about six months later, my dad gets famous. I mean, overnight, superstar. Him, my mom, and me, we packed the car which had to be, it felt like at four or five in the morning. I mean, the light is just breaking through the sky. And I remember all of our things. And then we moved. And then we moved to Teaneck, New Jersey. We stayed there for about six months, maybe eight, started feeling it more, okay? We're not in a housing project anymore. We're not, we're not in a little box. Now we're in a house. We have, we have land, we have grass. We have neighbors. And it's like, complete culture shock, new environment, new kids. Like, I was a bad kid. I was, it's strange because I was kind, but I had a heavy attitude problem. I did whatever the fuck I wanted to do. Like, to, um, to rewind for a bit, when I lived in Yonkers, there was, Two incidents, right? One of them, this kid, Jose, still remember his name. Jose had a little short buzz cut. We were drawing in kindergarten and everyone, I mean, everyone was drawing. That was the assignment. Jose says, he looks at my drawing and says, that's ugly. I said, what did you say? He said, that's ugly. I started choking Jose. Like, his face was, was turning blue. Mind you, the boy's skin was uh, like a, like a peanut, you know, complexion. The boy's face started turning blue. They had to rip me off of him. Another, another incident, um, same school, we were in line. Everyone had to line up, and uh, 
I told a kid to get in line because he was the only kid not getting in line, right? We're going to lunch, and, and you know, if you're not in line, the teacher's gonna make all of the kids wait for lunch. I'm hungry. This kid's not getting in line. I said, get in line. He says, no. I started punching him in the face. <laughs> Again, they ripped me off of the kid and I get sent to the principal's office and I still remember my dad's reaction, like elated that I beat some kid up for not getting in line. So anyways, to go back to when we lived in um, New Jersey, you know, people, people always ask, the number one question I've gotten throughout my life is, what is it like to be DMX's son? And the answer changes, and it has been changing throughout life. Pardon me. Ask me now, It is what it is. It's a gift, a burden at times, but more often than not, it's a gift. It's a gift because It's a gift from the lessons, the life, the opportunities that I have been fortunate enough to experience. And when I've spoken on other interviews, not, in, not on this show, when I've spoken on other interviews, I have not spoken of those opportunities, of those gifts. I have had one of the best educations that money can buy. I went to Fox Lane Middle School and Fox Lane High School West Patton Elementary School. Now, when I was there at Fox Lane, when I was there, it was rated 15, number 15 in the state of New York. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And I know I haven't spoken of that enough. When people hear me speak, it's about 
the conflicts that me and my dad have had. And listen, we have had them. We have. But I want to acknowledge the opportunities and the gratitude that that his successes have granted me. Mm. 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 You know, I'm just like, I, I feel it. I feel it in my chest, just being lifted. I didn't get to tell him that enough. But I like to believe that he knows and that he knew. Because I never, no, that's, that's not true. You know, there, there were times in my life where I did not like him as a human being. Mm. To be honest, times where I hated him as a human being. I am grateful to say that when he died, by the time he died, we had peace. I don't know if people knew that or saw that from the HBO, ugh, the HBO show or anything else, let it be known that we had peace. There was not a drop of anguish or conflict between the two of us. I accepted him in my heart, 100%, and he accepted me. You know, there was a time, I remember when we were, as a family, moving my brother Sean in to college. And it was me, it was my mom, my grandpa, my sister, and my other brother. And, and my ex, my ex-girlfriend at the time, It was COVID, so only two could go in at a time. And my mom, um, my mom and of course, obviously my brother, Sean, went inside. And I think Praise went in. But it's two at a time. And my mom came out just from taking a break. And my dad happened to be on FaceTime with her. And I got on the phone with him, and, and well, that, that, was, that was something new. I asked to be handed the phone, like with enthusiasm, not, not a knot in my stomach, but enthusiasm. 
we were just talking, just chopping it up, and he happened to be in Miami at the time, sun shining on his face, had black shades. And I said, how are you, Dad? How are you? It's like, I'm good, I'm good. And I said, Dad, I want you to know I see you. I love you for you. Don't ever change. When I uttered those words, the smile on his face, ear to ear, And I saw his spirit become lighter. Become lighter. Because on top of, on top of the conflicts and disagreements me and him have had, just man to man, father to son, of how dishonorable he was to our family, to his wife, my mother, to his sons, to his children, to his daughter, my siblings, daughters, sons, We'll get to that. And a huge conflict that we had was accepting each other, embracing each other as we were without edits, just a full, full open heart on that. It was around, the year was 21, I believe, yep. 2021, November, Thanksgiving. I hadn't seen my father for Thanksgiving prior to that in years, several years. Prior to that visit, because I wanted to see him, I wanted to see him. And at that time, he was living in White Plains, and at the time, I was still living in New York. And look, I was, I was grown, I was big, so I knew, I'm like, okay, he does, he does drugs. He does cocaine, okay. It is what it is, it's, not, it's nothing to be hidden anymore. I'm old enough now. I said to myself, 
I'm going to see my father. Whatever I see, I see. And I'll be okay with it. If I have to knock on the door for an hour, so be it. If I have to knock on the door for two hours, so be it. If I have to climb the roof and break in through the window, so be it. So I went. I pull up to his house and I have a moment with myself before I get out the car and I go, okay. Well, you're here now. This shit is real. You ready? Yes, I am. Walk up to the door. I'm knocking. Nothing. Okay, I'm like, I, I expected this. I'm ready. I knock again. Nothing. I'm like, all right. Let's get more aggressive. I walk around the side of the house, around the kitchen area. I knock on that window. Nothing. Okay. I must be, I must be getting avoided now. I see the cars out front. I'm like, okay. They're here, okay. I go back to the front door. And this time I don't knock, I bang. And his fiance comes out, Desiree. She's like, hey Zay, you know, good spirits. You know, and I could tell she was slightly disheveled, you know. Like my dad is here, right? And before I can even give her a chance to answer, I just say, yeah, my, you know, my dad is here, right? I'm, I'm coming to see him. He's upstairs, right? She goes, yeah, he's upstairs. So I walk in the house. I walk up the steps. And to my left, there he is in the bedroom. There's a blanket over him. And to give you a visual, there's candy wrappers on both sides of the dresser, left, right. He looked Agitated, kind of spaced out. I'm like, all right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Didn't see any drugs, didn't see any crack, cocaine, pills, nothing. So nothing like that. Shit, so whether if they cleaned up before I got in, I'll never know, but I, I saw nothing. And I saw nothing to give me that indication. 
So I'm like, how are you? He's like, good, chillin'. Okay. I take a seat at the edge of the bed by his feet. The Bone Collector is on TV. And that was one of the things that, sidebar, that was one of the things that we always bonded over. Our love for cinema. And really as a, as a whole, as a family, cinema, movies. We'd gather around the TV and just get engrossed in the film. And then afterwards he would ask us questions. What did you guys think about that? What did you think about that scene? How would you analyze that? Both my parents too, that, that cinema, cinema. So to go back, there's about silence, 15 minutes, 20 minutes or so. I'm thinking, how to, what's my way in here? And we still didn't say too many words. And we just started talking about out of nowhere. The conversation starts flowing. We're talking about the origins of Thanksgiving, how we didn't agree with it. And it shocked me. Like, when, when he was still living at home with all of us, we celebrated, and we celebrated hard every single year. No matter what tour he was on, he made, he made it his duty to be home. Hmm. Just having a moment. He tried, man. He really fucking tried. He did the best he could with the tools and experiences that he was given. Deeply flawed, but aren't we all? The more life that I live, the more I understand. Not condone his behavior, his actions. But I understand. I'm a man. I'm 30 years old. I support myself. I live by myself. I have my own responsibilities. I understand.
I understand the temptations. I understand having the knowledge to do better. Having the intention to do better, to be righteous. But the flesh, the flesh is too weak. I understand. I understand. So when we were talking, I brought up the Iyama episode. And I I have to clear the air, because I mean shit, I know some people will still be confused, but I'll clear the air anyway. She never manipulated me. She never coerced me into doing anything. What people didn't see, and this is, it's TV, so you wouldn't know it unless you were there filming. Me and her had a interview, just the two of us, for about two or three hours of just us speaking. Pardon me. We were in the room, and you saw snippets of it, but you only saw the highlights. Just the little, the buzzword, the buzzworthy moments. And, of course, there were other people in the room, you know, the sound people, other alternate cameras. Um, but it was just me and her talking. And before I went into that interview, before I went into the show as a whole, I was ready to criticize him, condemn him, beat him the fuck down. And then I sat with her. And I don't remember word for word. So I'll paraphrase it. But in other words, she asked me, have have you ever tried compassion with your father? Are you aware that addiction is an illness? It is a mental illness. To both questions, I replied no. I didn't know what compassion was. I didn't know what it meant to have compassion. I didn't know or have the grasp of addiction being being a mental illness. And I've had my own addictions. Later, right, they, they, it wasn't at that time, but later I had my own addictions. I had addictions of hmm, 
I had addictions of food, eating my feelings away, because at certain points in my life I had, I felt like I had no control. I had addictions of shit, masturbation, and nothing is wrong with masturbation. But when you're doing it several times a day, not even for pleasure, but just to have an orgasm to turn your mind off, that's an addiction. Wow, where was I? So when... So when she asked me those questions, I took a step back and I had to analyze myself. And rethink my approach of how I went into that interview with my dad. Not from a place of judgment, like I was getting ready to do, and then we both would have been screaming, not just him, I want my father and I to actually have peace, then judging him is not going to be the way to get it. So we go into the interview. Well, e okay, even before that, I'm going to rewind here. I'm going to rewind. Even before I got on that show, I knew a good, a good friend of mine by the name of Maya. Maya Alexander. I gotta give you credit for this. Thank you. She worked with the, what's the name? Uh, whichever the production company that was doing this show, the Young um, Fix My Life show, she said, she just called me out of random. She said, Xavier, I got an opportunity for you that I think you're gonna love. And I'm like, what is it? She says, I work with this woman named Ianla Von Zant. She counsels people, mends their relationships. And I got to talking and I think that you and your dad would be a great, what's the word? Um, I hate to say subjects, but fuck it. Subjects, right? You'd be, you'd be great for this show. And I think this would be a great opportunity for you and your father to mend what is, what is so wounded between the two of you. 
like, uh, uh, I don't know about that. I, 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 I like my life where it is. Mind you, my life where it was, I had to be maybe 19, 19 or 20 years old at the time. Fucking broken. Um, in a shell. Still living in the past. Wounded. But just going along, right? Living to live. I'm like, ah, no, no. I don't know. She's like, okay. Just think about it. Just think about it. And so I did. I asked myself, because I was aware, like, that I was broken. I was aware how just my beat, beat mentally I was, and emotionally. But doing my best to get on with life. I say, okay. Okay. Xavier, you know you're broken right now. You've reached your ceiling, your emotional and mental ceiling. You've reached it. In fact, you've reached it so much, your, your, your neck is just starting to break because you're just, you're on the ceiling. Now, the choice is yours. You can remain broken, wounded, not take this opportunity, or you can break the fucking ceiling, grow beyond your wildest imagination, set yourself free, confront your father in front of the world. Heal billions. Billions. Who watch it. What you gonna do? And here we are. I remember telling my dad... When we went on that show, it took me a while to understand what he was saying by unconditional love. Now I believe you can love someone unconditionally and still hold space for yourself, to honor yourself, to be respectful towards yourself. And that's what I was doing back then. A lot of people didn't get it, that's okay. Probably still won't get it, that's okay. But what I told them was that I understand. 
I understand that I love you without judgment, without expectation. You could do a line of cocaine in front of my face right now. Wouldn't make a difference. Why? Because I love you as a human being. No more, no less. And he said, thank you. Thank you. I learned, not the hard way, but the long way, that parents, parents are people. And at one point, our parents were children with dreams, with fears, with joys. At one point, our parents were seven years old. In many ways, I knew that my father was seven years old. abandoned him at seven years old in the children's village, children's group home, at seven years old. So in a lot of ways, he was 50 years old with a seven-year-old brain. in the sense of his trauma. Hmm. I was reading this book. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. And the researcher was talking about how, and they gave several experiences because they researched and sat with several dozen patients over the course of years. And they spoke about how when a person experiences trauma, I mean immense trauma, whatever age they experience it, if they don't resolve it, whether that's through therapy, meditation, speaking about it, art, if they don't resolve it, whatever age it happened to them, that's the way, that's the age that they remain emotionally. There's this one story in it that is always fresh in my mind. This girl was 12 years old. 
She had a younger sister who was seven. And her father drove the both of them, the 12 year old and the seven year old, to the woods and said, like deep, deep in the woods, not, not in the shallow, like deep in the woods, hours and hours away from where they lived. Pardon me. And he says, all right, find your way home. And drove away. The girl, the woman said, and mind you, by the time the book came out, I mean, she was in her 40s. Up until that point of taking part in that research study, going to therapy, she was still four years old, 12 years old, pardon me, 12 years old, trapped in the woods. Hmm. Our experiences follow us, but we determine how they follow us. We determine what impact they make. Shit's gonna happen. It just is. You live here long enough, it's gonna happen. But we determine how we respond and how we react when it happens. Something I always say to myself, I became healed, or healing, (laughs) the work is never done, when I stopped battling my monsters, stopped locking them away, and instead invited them in, invited them in and said, hey, here, Have a seat on the couch. Talk to me. Why are you screaming? Why are you so hurt? Why are you so angry? Eventually those monsters Eventually those monsters became happy things. They became my friends, my allies. They were no longer monsters screaming, tucked away in a room somewhere. But they became my friends. They didn't tear me down but elevated me. Your wounds can become your wins if you allow them to.
on that note, peace. This has been episode one, The Process.